0: So, Alan, we had a fairly wintry Halloween here in Washington, D.C. How was it in Minnesota, and what did you and your son go as in your, in your family? Did you have a, a
1: family theme costume this year? So, we had a very wintry Halloween as well. It snowed quite a bit the night before. Oh, wow. It snowed. Yes, welcome to Minnesota. And uh, I, I, our family went as lions. My son has an incredibly cute lion outfit, and my wife made sure to get her and me matching lion Head, head dresses head stuff I love it so we we went as we went as lions my son was very my son was very impressed with his tail he kept running on going lion tail so good it was really
0: good. <laughs> <laughs> your hair is not on lion like i feel like you just needed to like kind of pick it out a little bit and you could really get it going it is a bit of a mane my son was a lion last year because we had not yet cut his hair and so his hair was like <laughs> eight or nine inches long and was just everywhere and we just kind of Kind of puffed it out and made it the main.
1: Well, your family also has the hair color for that. I mean, I don't know how yes, many brunette true. lions there are. It's a Jewish lion. It so you it's a Jewish lion. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're there.
0: Uh, yeah, we we were a. Uh, my son wanted to be a jungle bird
2: this year. A jungle
1: bird. A jungle bird. bird. Very like specific.
0: That's how we chose to interpret it. <laughs> At one point, he said hummingbird and we're like, oh, buddy, we bought the parrot costume. He's like, all right, that's fine. But It was very cute. He was impressed by the wings. He tried to fly and he wanted us to be jungle <laughs> did that birds. Go? Did he jump off the roof? He just kept sprinting down the road like clapping his arms. I think he would take off but he never did. Uh, and then he wanted us to be jungle birds as well. So I tried to get my wife to go as a bottle of Campari and I was going to go as a bottle of rum and the going would be the jungle bird cocktail. <laughs> but she vetoed that. as not family friendly probably correctly. It's it might be pushing it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we have a reputation on the block we got to maintain. So. Hello everyone and welcome back to a very spooky rational security. Ah ah ah. That was not the spooky vampire. That was the counting vampire. Yeah, that was the count. I was the count. Well, it's nearly the only vampire (laughs) I know the (laughs) voice I do regularly for my kid. Uh, But we're excited to have everyone here, including my co host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And my other co host, Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And I am, of course, one of your other, the third of the regular co hosts, Scott R. Anderson. And we are thrilled to be joined with her for her rational security debut, Lawfare Cyber Fellow Eugenia Lostry. Yohanya, thank you for joining us here today.
3: Thank you for having me. Hello.
0: We're very excited. I did not realize we had not had you on rational security yet, which I'm a little embarrassed by. I actually, like thought I had a distinct memory of having you on, and I don't know where that came from, but I entirely fabricated it. I do sometimes have dream episodes of Rational Security. Are you serious? Early in our run, I was very nervous about coming up with punny titles and topic segments, and so the Mm -hmm. night before, I'd be doing it as I go to bed. (laughs) I would (laughs) occasionally have dreams, so maybe that's wormed its way into my Mm -hmm. psyche, Uh, but we're thrilled to have you on to talk about some things happening in the cyber and tech space.
3: Well, nothing Unfeasions cyber space. has been happening in the last year, so I think it makes sense that this is my first time. Yeah, exactly.
0: Nothing <laughs> not cyber. Yes, we're really still a very analog society. <laughs> <laughs> you take away from this experience, well, this week we are going to dig into the tech space and the regulatory space for our topic. We are going to deal with a few topics that have been kind of hovering in the background that we're going to talk about that we wanted to talk about for a while. Um, Taking a small break for some of the big stories uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere that we've been talking about the last few weeks and that we'll no doubt be talking about next week. Um, But this week, we wanted to zoom in on a couple of other topics to discuss and what we're going to call the Regulatory Cage Match Edition in honor of at least one of our topics. Really, all three have a little bit of a regulatory angle on them. Topic one, broken AI. The Biden administration has rolled out a groundbreaking new executive order on artificial intelligence that seeks to take the first steps towards a real regulatory regime for this revolutionary technology. Is this a responsible step, or does it threaten to put the U.S. development of AI in a regulatory cage? Topic two, ending the fracas in Caracas. The Biden administration is taking a step towards thawing relations with the Maduro regime in Venezuela, easing sanctions at least temporarily in exchange for the release of political prisoners and a promise to hold competitive elections, though Maduro has yet to agree to ensure that most prominent opposition figures will be allowed to participate. Is this the right path forward or folly? And topic three. Let's get Mikey to do it. He'll try anything. We have a new Speaker of the House in the form of Representative Mike Johnson, and he has decided to open his speakership with a bold move, separating aid from Israel out from other emergency measures and insisting that it be funded by cuts from the Internal Revenue Service, a model popular with the more conservative elements of the Republican Caucus in the House, but that President Biden has promised to veto and that Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has come out publicly against. What does this tell us about the direction Congress is headed in in the weeks to come? For our first topic, I'm going to hand it over to me to introduce because <laughs> this I can, did not get out of uh, having to transition to myself this I, week. I
1: got to say this this happens every couple of months where you are the first person to do the topic, and I just love it because there's always and I'm going to transition it to me. There's like this like Mario Brothers inflection. So Mario, it. it's a, <laughs> it's
0: a childhood the, delay. Exactly. That's the only way I can refer to myself is as a video game character, uh,
1: <laughs>
0: which is appropriate for this particular segment. We are of course talking about the very lengthy. Very very complicated executive order that the Biden administration put out earlier this week after having kind of previewed it a few days earlier, kind of confusingly and talked as if they had put it out. And then we all tried to find the text and realized it still wasn't out yet, but they did eventually get it out there. It's interesting use of the Defense Production Act, a authority that I think a lot of people are probably familiar with uh, from the recent battle with COVID, where it was deployed to help increase the manufacture of various I think vaccines, if I recall correctly, also masks and certain other safety and uh, hygiene equipment, um, somewhat controversially, faced some legal challenges in certain regards in that in that domain. Um, and now we're seeing it put to use alongside a number of other illegal authorities in the AI space. This isn't the first time the Biden administration has stepped into the space. We saw kind of a statement of principles maybe about a year ago, I want to say, maybe a little bit more. Um, that was kind of an executive branch guidance document that seemed to lay out. a a roadmap saying, here are a couple of key interests regarding AI. Here's a way that we're thinking about regulating it. Here's some kind of preliminary guidance for states, for private actors, for federal agencies. But this really goes much further in trying to build out an actual legal infrastructure, a lot of which at this point is still preliminary or kind of kicking off studies and evaluations to see what the further steps will be. But that nonetheless can be an important political first step. But including a few actual regulatory measures that will actually shape how AI is used, developed, and interacted with by actors su- subject to those. So, Eugene, let me hand it over to you as somebody I know who thinks a lot about AI and uh, in- other issues in this space. Tell us a little bit about what jumps out to you as the key elements of this executive order and where it fits into the Biden administration's kind of broader strategy. Hmm. How should we be thinking about the most important parameters of this executive order?
1: Hmm.
3: So – I think we can definitely see the AI EO as the U.S. officially throwing the hat in the ring. Is that the appropriate expression? Um, I'm always yeah, confused so. by American expressions. Yeah. We, don't, okay.
0: we don't wear hats, and we rarely have sports with rings these days. I yeah, have okay.
2: no idea where that comes from.
3: Okay. I've always wanted to use this, so um, here's the opportunity. This is yes. your moment. So, so the U.S. is throwing uh, you know, the hat in the ring of AI regulation discussions, right? You mentioned that they've... Issued statements before, there are some principles they've been participating in the discussions. But when you compare it to some of the other jurisdictions that have been thinking about it, this is the first time that we have kind of sweeping action. And uh, you know, as they are themselves trying to, to present it, this is a really distinct approach that they're trying to, to try. You know, I think it's also interesting to note here that this is happening in the same week that the UK is hosting its AI summit. And you have the G7 issuing the statement on the AI Hiroshima, no, the Hiroshima AI process. So there's definitely a lot happening this week. And this is just one of those elements. Um, And the U.S. is definitely trying to put forth and convince other countries that their position is, is the way forward. So what does the EO actually do? Right? I think it's interesting that it starts in a way that is somewhat cliched because this is the way in which I see so many white papers, so many reports start out, which is, oh, insert technology here holds extraordinary potential, but also extraordinary risk. In this case, of course, AI. And it basically directs agencies to balance this promise, the risks, but also to ensure that the U.S. continues to be a leader in the space. And I think that is um, a sentiment that you know, you can, you can find throughout, throughout the EO. They set out eight principles that should govern the development of and use of AI. Um, I'm just going to read them just to give you a sense of how broad the scope of the executive order is, right? So you have first, artificial intelligence must be safe and secure. Second, Promoting responsible innovation, competition, and collaboration will allow the U.S. to lead an AI and unlock the technology's potential to solve some of society's most difficult challenges. Three, the responsible development and use of AI require a commitment to supporting American workers. Four, artificial intelligence policies must be consistent with the administration's dedication to advancing equity and civil rights. The interests of Americans who increasingly use, interact with, or purchase AI and AI enabled products in their daily lives must be protected. Six, Americans' privacy and civil liberties must be protected as AI continues advancing. Seven, it is important to manage the risks from the federal government's own use of AI and increase its internal capacity to regulate, govern, and support responsible use of AI to deliver better results for Americans. And eight, the federal government should lead the way to global societal, economic, and technological progress, as the United States has in previous eras of disruptive innovation and change. So, of course, not all these sections as you go through the EO are equally developed or are equally detailed. There's some very good analysis in an article on The Atlantic from Karen Hao and Matteo Wong that I think captured some of my own feelings after reading this, which was basically if the document reads like a smashing together of papers written by completely different groups, that's because it likely is. And I think that definitely stuck out for mm-hmm. me. Um, yes. But, you know, I think I want to be positive about the executive order. This is very ambitious. It is good that the administration is is doing work. A way of thinking about it that I particularly liked, and I heard this in the AI Breakdown podcast, is that this is the administration kind of planting a flag on what are the issues that need to be studied, that needs to be addressed. And that is precisely why, as you mentioned before, a lot of the outcomes that we're going to see are likely studies being conducted, reports being written, guidance being issued, and not necessarily coming out right now saying this is the very regulatory uh, approach that we're taking. I also want to flag, you know, we can find this a little bit underwhelming, maybe, especially when they're saying this is some of the most ambitious work on AI that is happening anywhere in the world. But kind of the catalyst for a lot of the attention on AI, which is the release of ChatGPT, happened less than a year ago, or almost a year ago. So, you know, it's kind of impressive to have a document that is this long, detailed. It covers so much, and you know, for the for the speed of bureaucracy. You now, this is this is quite good. I think we can see that as a as a win. And then lastly, I would say that the not the EO, but in the fact sheet, you can see it directly. There is a recognition of the limits of how much the administration can do by itself. And so it does call on Congress to say <laughs> you're supposed to be working on privacy legislation. And this is definitely AI in general is going to be an area where Congress will need to step up.
0: So you mentioned that this reads like the bringing together or jamming together a bunch of different interests. What leads you to that? Can you give us a few examples? Like, What are the different stakeholders that you see reflected in here that, that don't seem to be necessarily meeting in the middle in the most cohesive way that makes us seem a little patchwork?
3: So I think for the different sections, you definitely have input from different stakeholders. And so in some cases, you're going to have some of the language that replicates what some of the big tech companies are putting out or the way that they're thinking about, you know, what is reasonable in terms of regulation for themselves. But then when you go to the section about protecting workers, where you talk about, you know, safety and trust, when you talk about watermarking, when you're talking about the detection of synthetic content, for example, I think you can see the influence of maybe more civil society minded um, stakeholders. And, you know, I think in particular, the, the use, the fact that they're calling out specific measures like uh, watermarking for you know how to do it, it, it shows that in some of these issues, there's been more thinking or these considerations have been their minds for for a little bit longer interesting yeah alan you
0: know you've uh, have talked to us about this before and about the need to strike the right balance between kind of ai development and regulation about concern over ai and the potential for ai do you have a sense or a feeling about where this falls on the spectrum uh, acknowledging that a lot of this is still pretty preliminary like does your do you have a gut reaction to where this falls or or is it kind of a wait and see
1: I mean, kind of both. I mean, it's fine, right? This is the thing about AI. No one's actually really even sure what it is or where it's going, how it works. So, you know, expecting the government, which is already several levels removed from the actual technology, to be able to comprehensively regulate it when, frankly, Sam Altman barely understands, you know, what's going on in his own systems. And I don't say that as a criticism of Sam Altman. It's just the nature of the technology. It's a little unrealistic. Um, And I think they've done this in a reasonably light touch way. I mean, You know, I think there's been a lot of of hyperventilating among Silicon Valley types that, you know, this is is showing that the U.S. is going to hamstring AI through this regulatory bloat. And I just don't see what in this is even, frankly, doing anything, let alone doing something to the extent of seriously interfering with the development of, of AI. I mean, yes, there's some reporting requirements from the Defense Production Act. There's, you know... A reaffirmation of the FTC's ability to go after, you know, false and misleading information and in consumer products. But of course, the FTC has always had that. We didn't need an executive order to reiterate that. Lena Khan's been saying that for you know over a year now. Th- there's 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 calls for the federal government to staff up on AI expertise. But if that's that, of course, that'll take years and years, um, because there aren't that many AI experts. And why would you go to the government when you can be paid millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars, to go work for Google or Microsoft or OpenAI on this? And then there's a bunch of recommendations, which is like, fine, the the administration can recommend anything it wants. So if anything, this is airing very much on the light touch side. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's about as far from overreach as we can get. I mean, to me, the most interesting thing here is the Defense Production Act part, because I think, A, there's a substantive, interesting question about what does the Defense Production Act do? Um, It's this law we never think about until we ever so often occasionally think about it. Um, and you know, it'd be worth doing a deep dive into this at some point. I'm just kind of curious what this thing actually actually allows the federal government to do. But the other reason I think it's interesting is because it's kind of showing that there aren't that many existing regulatory tools that the administration has. I mean, there is the FTC, but again, the FTC's ambit is somewhat limited. There's no AI regulation. Obviously, Congress isn't gonna do anything. I mean, let's be real. So you know, are we going to be stuck with the the um, administration trying to use the Defense Production Act to regulate AI? I mean, are they going to declare a national emergency so they can use various emergency authorities? Um, I think it just shows the kind of paucity of regulatory frameworks that are available. And, you know, I, for one, am very interested about the creative lawyering um, that will no doubt go into squeezing every drop of regulatory juice out of the uh, Defense Production Act.
0: Yeah, that's really what jumped out to me too. I'm, I I think I – before we recorded while you were not here because you live in Minnesota, I said <laughs> Alan and I will be interested in this very technical, <laughs> yes. stupid legal angle of this that has very little to do with the actual substance. Yeah. Scott, you and I should do
1: our deep dive into the Defense Production <laughs> Act. That The two of us will read no one else.
0: Exactly. Because it is really like there's two legal authorities this leans on. Really, in what it actually does, operationalizes, you know, whenever this gets implemented. So today or or whenever the actual implementation date is. One is the DPA, the Defense Production Act, and the other is the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, IEPA. The IEPA use seems relatively straightforward in part because IEPA is incredibly broad and interpreted incredibly broadly as long as there's a foreign nexus and that's what it's using it for here. The problem is you can't do that for primarily domestic purposes essentially and so it doesn't really help you with domestic regulation. That's why the use of the DPA is so interesting um, because they essentially are using the DPA here to establish a regulatory regime and a transparency regime. Um, The biggest DPA kind of ask here is requiring reporting obligations from a bunch of basically the big actors in the AI industry. And I'm trying to think if that's a way that DPA has been used before. I, I don't know. I don't I don't I know AIPA extremely well, and I DPA I know less well, but it's not a natural use from the DPA, which is designed to and was originally intended to allow the president to force industry to develop materiel that you need to address a national emergency, like weapons traditionally, most recently, like again, vaccines, masks, things like that in the context of the global pandemic. It can apply to any sort of national emergency. There is a national emergency declared in regard in relation to AI issues, um, and so you can invoke that here. Uh, and you, I think it's the same one underlying one for the a, uh, for the um, IEPA usage as well. But I can't imagine that doesn't come under challenge to some of some sort. Uh, and like you have a lot of major actors in the AI space saying, "Yeah, we want regular, you know, responsible regulation." whether that's in good faith or a little bit of a cynical move to you know, try and hedge people out from the industry and consolidate, <laughs> control the industry and the existing big actors, or other nefarious purposes, let's be honest, it's probably a little bit of both. The uh, But the reality is like maybe they have an incentive not to challenge this, but there very well might be other AI actors. And it wouldn't be hard, especially given how lax we've seen the Fifth Circuit be on standing um, about challenging federal regulatory <laughs> measures the last year or two in the post-Trump Fifth Circuit era. Like I, I'd be surprised if these aren't legally challenged, honestly, at some point um, because it is a regulatory burden and the Supreme Court like doesn't like – the agencies using broad stat- statutory authorities designed for very different purposes decades ago to address major societal questions. You
2: like know, you know who's going to step in is Clearview AI. They're here. They're ah, tanned, They're rested. They're ready. They're ready. <laughs> they're ready. No, but, but, you know, you may be but, right, honestly. But, but,
1: but no, I think Scott, you're totally right. I mean, the 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 major questions doctrine challenge, the First Amendment challenge, the straight up non-delegation doctrine challenge—they write themselves in, in cases like this. Um, and so I, I would not be surprised at all if we get litigation in the next year or two in which, you know, this stuff is struck down in a way that also has some pretty consequential effects on other parts of the law.
2: I actually, you know, I was joking about Clearview, but the more I think about it over the last 30 seconds, since I made that joke, the more convinced I am because, because they've already been making these arguments that they have a first amendment protection against certain privacy regulations that would prevent them from using data on people's faces. So I think I think Floyd Abrams is going to be the white knight here for Sam Altman. He's going to swoop in on behalf of Clearview AI, and they're going to do this. Mark my words, listeners.
0: Yeah, I mean, it'll be very interesting. And then and then the question becomes, like, how much are these regulatory measures in effort to carve out a space in a regulatory role that you're then, after they get struck down, expecting Congress to step in for? Because it's a lot easier for Congress to – say, well, we had this regulatory regime for like a year and a half or two years before finally Supreme Court stepped in and struck it down. And we don't really – yeah, we may not be perfect, but we can all agree it's better than nothing and we have a starting point. And so maybe we can agree to just reenact it. I mean that's actually what has happened historically around like um, various types of trade restrictions uh, and um, the uh, Export Control Act, right, like was an, a statutory authority that lapsed over and over again. president used IEPA to keep it alive. When it lapsed, Congress would eventually say like, oh, I guess we do need an Export Control Act to reenact it. And then finally, like five years ago, finally actually installed a permanent Export Control Act.
3: So well, that's actually something that I've seen a lot of commentary on, how this yeah. marks a roadmap for Congress to say these are the areas where you should be, you know, that the areas that you should be paying attention to.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and, and that's a little diff- bit of a different dialogue than a straight regulatory action.
2: I mean I also wonder – and I, I genuinely don't know the answer to this question. Um, Alan Neheny, I'm curious for your thoughts. Whether it might be politically easier for Congress to actually take some steps here insofar as A, you could frame this as we need to you know, shore up U.S. industry to protect against big bad China – um, which can get bipartisan agreement. And B, the even though this is kind of at odds with point A, everyone hates the tech companies. <laughs> and whereas on Section 230, everyone hates the tech companies, but they want diametrically opposed things, so nothing has been done. In this instance, the sort of problems are inchoate enough and haven't yet developed sort of standard partisan lines in such a way that I wonder whether... It might actually be possible to sort of cobble together an agreement on what regulation could look like, especially if the administration has already kind of set something out on the table. Maybe maybe that's completely ridiculous. I don't know. But I I do wonder.
0: Yeah. Do you guys have a sense about what the congressional engagement has been on this. Uh, I mean my sense is that like Congress has actually been kind of responsible around this issue. We've seen some like fairly serious substantive hearings. They haven't turned into big partisan shouting fests. They've been a little industry friendly I think by some criticisms. Uh, But then again like that's maybe not surprising from the outset in terms of you're dealing with a new emerging industry that you're trying to regulate. So like those are big voices you're going to hear from. Um, you need to hear from other voices too. But at least like you do need to hear from them. So it does it, it seem like a space where we might actually see congressional action a little more realistically than other spaces. Or is the struggle over privacy and assorted other – Items that have been pretty the source of a lot of bipartisan consensus on the need for something, but have not really seen any progress towards any sort of legislative fix, a sign that that's really not forthcoming. Mm -hmm. Ewan, what do you think about that?
3: Oh, I was about to, you know, let Alan (laughs) answer
1: that (laughs) first. Alan, what do you think about that? (laughs) I don't think anything's going to happen. I mean,
3: it's it's not. I was trying to, you
2: know, throw something out there, be optimistic. No, I'm I'm I'm
1: pulling the full quinta. I'm I'm just, I'm I'm going going full (laughs) grump on this. Nothing's going to happen. Nothing ever happens. There's no, there's no privacy. Like, I mean, we, we, we've been talking about privacy legislation for ever, right? And Congress has done exactly zero, right? There's no way they can do anything on, on AI. And it's great that they've been interested and engaged and all those sorts of things. But part of the reason is because no one's actually proposed anything meaningful. The moment you propose something meaningful, right, it's all going to sort of, you know, crash and burn anyway. Because, like, at the end of the day, no matter what Sam Altman says about yes, we should be licensed, they don't want to be regulated, right? Not certainly not regulated in a way that'll actually limit their ability to collect data, process that data, build models. Again, I'm not saying this is bad, right? Um, you know, uh, maybe we should just go full speed ahead as Mark Andreessen would like us to do into our techno utopia. <laughs> um, you know, Skynet, <laughs> Skynet, SkyNet, <laughs> Skynet, be damned. You know, um, you know, if you if you if you if you zoom out long enough, technology really is generally a force for good. So maybe we should just do that. But uh,
2: You can't see my expression listeners.
1: Yeah, I, I look I am I'm, I'm half trolling Quinta. <laughs>
2: I, I can, can't resist. I, honey and I were both traumatized by oh Mark and Manifesto not a or whatever manifesto. It's that is a, good a the futurist
3: manifesto,
1: you might call it. He makes it hard for us fellow techno-utopians. God.
3: But Alan, I I do have a question for you on that. Do you think that that sort of explains why in the EO you have maybe more focus on some of those long-term hypothetical risks. And then when it comes to what we consider current risks about the, de- the deployment of AI for education, for example, you have, you know, honestly, bigger kind of promises or bigger principles being applied to, oh, we should, yeah, this is important. Um, but it's not as much as when you look at the impact of AI on like nuclear threats or biological threats.
1: I, I mean, I guess so, but I'm still just not convinced that scoping the problem narrowly is the key to getting Congress to engage. I mean, there are a million things Congress could do right now about privacy. Congress could outlaw Clearview AI tomorrow, right. Um, on a unanimous vote or something like that. Right. Um, and yet they're not going to do it because it's just, everything is hard. So, you know, it's true that maybe dealing with AI and education is somehow easier or less complicated than dealing with existential Skynet AI. But even just dealing with AI in education is really complicated, right? Um, you know, should should we use AI? Oh, well, but to- I'm
3: making the uh, – sorry, I'm making the, the opposite argument. I'm saying it is easier to say that you're going to do work on those long-term hypothetical oh, risks than it is to say, oh, we're actually going to tackle this very real current concern.
1: Yeah, no, th- but that's depressing, right? Oh yeah! Okay, okay. got it. Now, sure we're all on the same <laughs> yeah, yeah, bummed out page. Yeah.
2: Speaking of being bummed out, we now we now go uh, several hours south to Venezuela. But we're less bummed
1: out in um, Venezuela
2: now. I think we're still pretty bummed out, okay. man. I don't know. So well here here's my here's my intro. Listener, you can decide how bummed out you are or are not um after after I launch into my spiel. So Venezuela is currently headed for elections that could potentially challenge the hold on power of authoritarian president Nicolas Maduro. There have been recently some potentially hopeful signs that this could actually be a competitive election that could really call into question Maduro's grip on power. There was a sort of consolidated semi-official opposition primary where uh, Maria Corina Machado, who is a former opposition legislator, won a pretty resounding victory. All of this is a happy story so far. And it goes along with a commitment by the United States recently to lift sanctions on Venezuelan oil in exchange for the Maduro government's commitment to fair elections. This is where the story stops being so happy. Sorry, Alan. Um, Maduro's government uh, recently barred Matado from running for office, uh, despite that commitment that was made um, with this sort of opposition bloc and with the United States. This, I think, raises a number of questions, not only about whether Venezuela, but also how the U.S. is going to handle this, given that agreement to lift these sanctions, um, so, Scott, I definitely want to talk about the U.S. policy aspect with you, but Eugenia, you've been following this. First off, I'm curious what you make of all of this. I guess to to back up a little bit, first off on what it says that Maduro was willing to make this agreement potentially to free and fair elections to begin with, um, and then what it means that he appears to have reneged, if he has indeed reneged, which I admit I am still somewhat confused
3: about. So I don't know if he has reneged. I think it must be, again, I'm going to caveat this by saying this is all my personal opinion, just my feelings and thoughts. But, you know, what does it mean that he agreed to this? Well, that the situation in Venezuela is not great, that the sanctions have been working and they continue to you know, impact the economy and the people. You see a migratory crisis. Um, there's, you know, not a lot of access to, to 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 cover basic needs, and and that is hurting the government. Now, Maduro, of course, does not want to lose power. I think uh, Matello's results she got. of the vote out of 10 opposition candidates. Which is like quite impressive. It was quite impressive. Is she she
2: popular, can I ask? Or or is this more kind of a reflection of Venezuelans wanting to consolidate around a sort of opposition figure so that she comes through very strongly?
3: I I, I think she's a a decently popular candidate, but I I don't have a lot of authority to say that. (laughs) Um, But also the fact that a lot of people came out to vote. This uh, election on Saturday was not organized by the official electoral commission. They, you know, asked them not to be involved because there are concerns about how they would interfere. Um, there were concerns about fraud. So, you know, I think over two million people came out to vote, which, from some of the analysis that I've read, is pretty impressive for a primary. And it I think it shows that if there were to be, freer, fairer elections next year in Venezuela, the people are interested. They they want to participate in the democratic process and they want to vote for an alternative. And I think that probably scared Maduro, who is now saying that the election, the primary election was not conducted appropriately. There are accusations of fraud and and they're just challenging the leg- legitimacy of, of Machado's candidacy.
1: So when I when I first read about this story, and I should say I know very, very little about Venezuelan politics, um, it occurred to me that this seems like an extremely unusual instance of sanctions actually doing something. Because at least my read of the international relations literature or the consensus over the past you know 10, 15 years is that people have really soured on sanctions ever really being effective. And so I'm curious, Scott, if this is as unusual as I think it is, and if so, should we read anything into it regarding the effectiveness or lack thereof of sanctions to create good democratic results in the world?
0: Yeah, well, you know, and this latest development is, is a sign that maybe these weren't as effective as as we thought they were <laughs> uh, or the effort to lift them. But, you know, it, my view is that sanctions – treating sanctions as kind of a category has always been a little bit of an error because sanctions are very context-specific in what they actually mean for a given state – right um you know this is a a case where venezuela is in a very unique geopolitical position uh, it has and it is existing in a moment where there is a growing major power competition so you have an ability to pivot towards russia or towards china um that can substitute to some extent in for the united states although frankly that is a lot harder in Latin America than it is in other parts of the world, uh, which I think is a a challenge that Venezuela is still wrestling with, um, which is part of the reason why it can't actually totally divorce itself from the United States as much as it might like to. And it is also at this moment where we see in the last year and a half, as the United States has been trying to advance a global campaign to put economic pressure on Russia, a big weak point of that is that they can't clamp down too much on energy production in Russia, because that would have massive economic consequences in the rest of the world and particularly in Europe, and might weaken European resolve to back Ukraine, among other factors, and just cause general, you know, human misery. So for that reason, something we've heard talked about for a while is like, well, maybe we can get Venezuela back up online, ease some sanctions to get their production up. And that is a, a long-term goal. I mean, the Venezuela's, by my understanding, Venezuela's petroleum sector, energy production sector, which is close ties with the United States in a lot of different regards. You know, one of its major subsidiaries is in the United States and is now under the control of Juan Guaido, the opposition figure that was recognized by the Trump administration as the interim president and who was given control of all these things as part of an effort to oust Maduro essentially or at least pressure Maduro into leaving. That failed uh, pretty dramatically in this case. In this case where you – the sector has degraded enough that you can't really get production up without long-term investment and you can only get long-term investment – If you get major outside actors confident you're going to be in an environment that's at least sanctions predictable if not sanctions free because any investment they make there is going to have zero return value if all of a sudden they're not allowed to do business with Venezuela again later. And so it requires a much more calibrated balancing of interest to advance this. This bears on sanctions, right? Because – from 2019 onward, the Trump administration embraced something really close to maximum pressure on Venezuela. The goal was we're going to basically do regime change in Venezuela by putting maximum economic pressure using a shift in recognition of the Guaido government or regime to give them control of a lot of Venezuela's overseas financial assets, diplomatic holdings, things like that. In coordination with Europe, the United States didn't do this alone. It was a very coordinated international effort. And that all failed because it's really hard – To get a regime out when you don't control facts on the ground, it's really hard to use external pressure to oust a regime, right? Um, But what you might be able to do is horse trade a little bit. If you're willing to accept and say maximum pressure isn't the goal, it's not either maximum pressure or a complete collapse and complete change that's contrary to the interest of the actual political act. If you're saying let's carve out – do some more horse trading. Let's say we can set up specific incentives to incentivize certain behaviors, certain compromises – I think that can be more effective and this is a sign that it's perhaps working here. The real question now is, well, what do we do that this opposition figure who I think to have a really meaningful opposition needs to be on the ballot? This is the real test, I would say. Like let's see what the threat of the reimposition of these sanctions and other measures can actually do to try and pressure Maduro into taking the step. And even then, like this is a step that really gets at the heart of his rule, right? Like Maduro is personally in a really bad place if he gets ousted from the government. This is a real red line for him. It doesn't mean that you couldn't use sanctions to get uh, concessions on lots of different spaces like we did with political prisoner releases, right? Again, it's context-specific. But it's a more limited toolkit and it's one you have to think of the strategic environment. And just saying, no, we're just going to maximum isolate a state until it completely fundamentally changes its means of governments in a way that is not in the interest of the people in charge with the guns and what resources are available on the ground – I don't think generally works, uh, and I think it's a, it's a little bit of a foolhardy strategy. And I think this has helped demonstrate that.
3: I mean, the aspect of this that I'm kind of interested in is kind of at the same time that the Biden administration announced that they were lifting the sanctions and that the, the Barbados agreement was was going through, they also marked the end to a four-year suspension on returning Venezuelan migrants. So, so they renewed deportation flights back to Venezuela, and and I'm kind of interested. In hearing your your thoughts on why now um, is you know Maduro suddenly seen as a trustworthy partner that you're you know returning all these people home because you know some of the reporting that I've read says you know once you leave you're seen as a traitor right as, a, as the of the regime so. Sending those people back, what are some of the, if you know, what are some of the protections in place? What are some of the commitments made by the Maduro administration to to ensure that those people are safe?
2: Yeah, I mean, Scott, I'm definitely, I'm curious for your thoughts here. I will say I was really struck by this as well. And I, I feel like it maybe speaks a little bit to how the Biden administration has been trying to position itself as quote unquote tough on immigration, um, which I have qualms with. But I think that you, you can see in this way how they you know, you might see a benefit and um, being able to say, look, we're sending people back. Um, On the other hand, the politics of that are a bit complicated because uh, when you get when you drill down into who are the people you're sending and where are you sending them, um, a lot of the same sort of political allies who would normally be in favor of kicking, quote unquote, them all out would no longer be in favor, given that uh, the Venezuelan immigrant community in the United States tends to be uh, sort of anti uh, left and quite Republican. Um, and there, I will say there's there's also an interesting twist here in the New York Times reporting on the matter that um, uh, the indictment of Senator Menendez was actually very important to this going through because Menendez, as the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, he's Cuban-American, is very sort of anti-communist Latin American regime in the way that Cuban-Americans Many of them are, and so had been uh, very opposed to deporting Venezuelan migrants. So, uh, sorry, Bob. Uh, now that he's no longer chair of SFRC, since he was indicted, he wasn't around to block that from happening. I just want
1: to say, Bob Bob Menendez may not be the hero America wants, but it, he may well be the hero America deserves.
2: <laughs> or at least the hero that New Jersey deserves. Oh, yeah, so, so in all in all of that, those senses, I think that I could see how the Biden administration could see this as a potential win, but I do agree that the... Mechanics are somewhat complicated, <laughs> um, and that's even before as as you say, Henry. We get to the question of you know what reassurances the Maduro regime may or may not have provided. Scott, I don't know if you have thoughts there.
0: No, I mean that's the right set of questions, and also the process they went through. Who these people are in terms of their relationship to the Maduro regime. Um, you know, I, I would be a little surprised if people who are like leg- like people associated with the Quaido opposition movement um, were at serious risk of imprisonment. For specific pre-existing reasons, as opposed to just generally, perhaps having a stigma now for having left the country and come back, um, those are, if I'm recalling, aspects of immigration law that I have not thought about in a while. But those can present very two very different fact patterns. That one has a better chance of saying, "Okay, you have some basis for being able to claim asylum." Another one, less so. Um, and I believe these are all people who have already gone through deportation proceedings; so they would have mm-hmm. already had. Whatever opportunities they're going to get to make those arguments, you can query how meaningful those are. Uh, they have already got them. Um, but I could be wrong about that. I actually don't know the details of that. But, you know, it is a – it is part of this big web that we find ourselves in um, that stems really from the 2019 choice. This this decision to say, hey, we're going to try and levy and really make Venezuela a major foreign policy priority that weirdly really just lasted like a few months
2: Remember when Venezuela was briefly about to be invaded by mercenaries? I wrote, that was I like, read, God, I wrote a whole
0: article yes. about it. I think, a couple articles. Big pigs, baby. It, it was just wild. Like we had this moment and it's such a strange moment to look back to. And there's it, a lot of things in that are emblematic of a lot of Trump administration, foreign policy, policy general, but foreign policy in particular where – Clearly, certain officials, probably John Bolton, um, probably – I'm fl- blanking on the name uh, um, of the gentleman who was his envoy for Venezuela right now. But It will come back to me uh, in a second, Elliot Abrams I think, uh, who was involved in this.
2: I think it was Elliot Abrams. Yeah, I believe it was
0: Elliot Abrams. Uh, I, 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 if I If I have that wrong, I could be wrong. Uh, I apologize, but that's my recollection. You know, if you are – you were had a moment where certain figures felt really strongly about this they were able to get the president on board get the administration built again a pretty impressive multilateral like effort to do this like if you were going to try and do this you couldn't have done it more effectively than they did in terms of getting most of the world on board with recognizing this opposition figure as opposed mm-hmm. to maduro But then there was just very little follow-through. Like the follow-through was all weird eclectic stuff like maybe somebody in Guaido's government and maybe with a little help from the intelligence community, although I think that's very questionable whether that actually happened, trying to hire mercenaries to do some weird paramilitary stuff that doesn't really make sense in terms of anything that's going to change facts on the ground. Like it's just not clear where this was going to go. And it's, again, this optimism that people have about – what it takes to change regime and how fragile some of these more oppressive regimes are. And I I think the clear answer we've learned here is that they're actually not that fragile. And often when you break them, it's not 100% clear what's going to follow in their wake. Like that's what we learned in Afghanistan and Iraq and a lot of other places. Um, Like democracy is is something that's hard to build, not that just falls naturally into place when you remove an authoritarian government, sadly. I mean, I wish it were that easy. And so – you know, I, I think the Biden administration has inherited this very complicated policy where they're still recognizing Guaido technically. I suspect that will change if we get an election because he was always the interim president. But you know, clearly, they feel the need to engage with Maduro now, uh, very realistically, I think, in line with their broader policy goals. And it's just a really hard needle of thread.
1: So going from one democratic slash semi-democratic mess to another democratic slash semi-democratic mess, let's talk about our new speaker, Mike Johnson. After many weeks, the GOP finally got his act together and voted for, I think, basically Steve Scalise without the baggage or experience. I think that is the uh, general consensus as to who Mike Johnson is, <laughs> um, and uh, he certainly uh, he, he's certainly not shying away from uh, political battle. Um, so the 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 first kind of big thing he stepped into, and that uh, we'll be talking about uh, in this segment is. Uh, this proposed aid package to Israel of $14 billion that Johnson and therefore presumably the House Republicans would like to pay for by removing $14 billion from the IRS. Now, the the way they're trying to spin this, of course, is that the aid to Israel is offset by a cut in government spending elsewhere. But of course, cuts to the IRS don't function like cuts to almost any other program, because the IRS is a really good investment um, in terms of how much you spend on it to how much you get out of it, so actually cutting fourteen billion dollars from the IRS doesn't actually save you fourteen billion dollars. it costs you probably many more billion dollars in terms of taxes not withheld um, so it's pretty clear what game he's playing it's cute we'll We'll see what happens but you know the you know there's a lot to ask about sort of both this particular tactic and then sort of what this says about Johnson as a speaker. Let me start with you quinta do you do you think that this will succeed? do you think you will actually be able to force? spending cuts to the irs or is this just fun political theater it'll get vetoed in the or it'll get ignored by the senate and then ultimately the house will republicans will swallow a you know offset free package of military aid to the israelis because ultimately they really really care about supporting israel
2: yeah i mean i think this is pretty obviously not going anywhere (laughs) Um, I mean, I'll, I, I guess I'll say I'll eat my shoe if it goes anywhere. How's, how's that?
0: Um, this has been a bet people have been making all over the lawfare office. <laughs> exactly.
2: I mean, ins- I've been inspired. And I don't know,
0: A, I don't like it because my feet are way <laughs> bigger than everyone else's here in my shoes. It would be a lot more work. B, I've seen, have you ever seen the Werner Herzog, Herzog eats his shoe video?
2: No, but that sounds amazing. So he, he,
0: uh, he actually did eat his shoe when his uh, protege, awesome. why am I blanking on his name, who did. Fog of war and a thin blue line. Elliot. Errol Morris. Errol Morris. Thank you. Gosh, I feel, I'm embarrassed. I blanked on that. Errol Morris, when Errol Morris, his first movie actually got picked up in theaters, <laughs> Werner Herzog <laughs> had to show up and eat his shoe, and he actually boiled a boot and he ate it, I think, with steak sauce, like outside in a, on a
1: camp stove. Oh, Werner. And that's about the direction like, we're headed how, in here how in do you It makes me eat very that. nervous. I mean, like physically, it's a lot of chewing. It's leather I mean, it's leather, So it's, it's so boiling. <laughs> it.
2: Okay, okay. We have we have an actual. Thing I'm that a vegetarian, I need to so I'm not doing this. <laughs> so, I'm out. <laughs> So, no, I mean, I think that it seems pretty clear to me that this is not going anywhere, that this is sort of political posturing that is not particularly intended to go anywhere. Um, There's a really excellent piece that we just published on Lawfare uh, by Molly Reynolds called Speaker Johnson's First Test that sort of walks through the different moving pieces here. And, And the point that she makes is that This shows that, you know, while Johnson was sort of able to become speaker in the first place, and I'll just quote Molly here, the fundamental macro political dynamics that plagued former Speaker McCarthy Remain, House Republicans have a slim majority and some of their members have threatened to oppose aid unless it's offset, which uh, is referring to the, the IRS spending cuts but at least two other gop house members have announced that they will oppose any aid to israel leaving johnson with little room for error within his own caucus. Um so what we're seeing here is both political posturing and a sort of very very delicate dance that just shows how combustible the gop house conference is right now. I think the situation is very different in the senate. Uh, McConnell has not indicated that he's a huge fan of this, um, in part also because McConnell has been a big proponent of getting more aid to Ukraine. And part of, I think, the sort of political ploy with this bill is not only that it ties Israel aid to spending cuts, but that it also cleaves off aid to Ukraine, because that's been something that is quite controversial within the House Republican caucus um, to try to, you know, maybe push that away, kick the can down the road a little bit, not have a big fight immediately right now. But it just seems to me like you're inevitably going to get some kind of a showdown between the house and the Senate over this. Um, So as, as Molly points out, you know, Johnson is not someone with a huge amount of experience As far as speakers go. And so this is going to be a big test for him in terms of, you know, whatever his end goal is here, how well he's kind of able to navigate those political dynamics. Um, And I, I don't think it is clear as of now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. Here's the lessons I think I take away or the, t- the key points or observations I would guess here. First, like this is such an interesting salvo. A, it's clear this is a move towards the kind of Marjorie Taylor Greene yeah. uh, wing of the party Who, who, by the way, she has already come out and said she wouldn't vote for this even – because she just doesn't like, want assistance to go overseas at all, essentially. Um, but that kind of wing, the more isolationist wing, the wing that says, if we're going to allow this, we're going to need de- we're going to demand cutoffs. Because um, he's saying, we're just going to do Israel. We're not going to talk about Ukraine. We're not going to talk about Taiwan. Although Taiwan actually probably has more of those people in its camp than Ukraine does. And instead, we're just going to do this thing. And we're going to do it in a way that doesn't address traditional fiscal conservative values, which other people in this party do care about still. Some people, at least they feel like they have to, to maintain certain donors, to maintain certain – reputations to kind of fit with their ideological mold in their districts because this actually, again, as Alan correctly noted, hurts the budgetary picture further by reducing tax revenue. Instead, you're doing it in a cuts in a way that speaks even more to that radical kind of anti-Biden, tear-it-all-down party because it, the whole goal here is to undermine a major legislative accomplishment of – the Biden administration, which through its infrastructure package it passed uh, during the last Congress, got more funding for IRS. This is just trying to take it away. So the goal is just to tear down whatever the other team may have accomplished and try and get whatever pound of flesh you can get in that direction, even though it's not clear what policy goal you're advancing here. Again, it hurts the budgetary picture, right? Like if you just – unless you just straight up just don't think people should pay taxes they're legally obligated to pay, it's not clear how this actually helps anything. But it's worth bearing in mind we have to see what he does with this here, right? Like maybe he's going to say, "Okay, I'm going to do the Boehner strategy where I let people (laughs) vote on this stuff. I let them have their way and then it becomes clear it's not going anywhere. They get out of their system. They can tell their constituents we voted for it and then people will have to swallow a compromise and yeah, those people will probably still vote against a compromise but I can bring it to the floor. We'll get a handful of Democrats or maybe a lot of Democrats on board depending on what it looks like. Um, We'll get the the more conventional Republicans in in the fold and – The more radical side of my caucus will not be angry enough at me to threaten my leadership because lord knows we just went through three weeks of complete chaos where we all look like idiots Um, and I did give them the opportunity to try and persuade people and they failed to do that, right? So like there's a strategy there and, and you get that and the question then becomes like how much hardball does he get to get to that other side? The Senate can pass its own version. The House will then have it on the floor. He can bring it up for a vote saying, hey, we just have to look at the Senate version. You can go in a conference. You can try and find a way, some way to reconcile it, right, Uh, and come up with some new version. That gives you a lot of stuff you can do in black boxes and behind closed doors that can be – make it a lot more politically feasible to swallow something, um, wrap it up a lot more sugar and obscurity to figure out where the compromises are. You're probably not going to get through that radical wing of the the party, but the goal isn't necessarily to get them on board. It's just to get them satisfied enough that they don't threaten your leadership by undertaking this step. On the flip side here, he is in a tricky position because I kind of suspect Ukraine and, and particularly Israel and Taiwan and Ukraine and the border, actually all four of the issues that are in this, I think there's probably enough Republicans in the House that would seriously consider, particularly if they had big backing from Mitch McConnell or somebody else who has a lot of fundraising weight and a lot of kind of connections to make it – them be able to do this without seriously undermining their political futures in the Republican Party who might be willing to put a big fight over these items and say, no, we actually really need to do this. And if you get eight or nine of them, then you have – People on both sides threatening to Deep Six's leadership. Um, the difference is on one side, you have Democrats who will vote for the actual substantive legislation and get it through. and the other side, you don't, um, depending on, again, what it looks like. So I actually think there's a path here for those people to kind of win if Mike plays that route and doesn't give in to kind of the threats of the far Mike. wing. Uh, Mike. We're referring I think we call to a his first name now. Uh, Mike J. Uh, Mikey Mike. Uh, and, you know, really how radical they are. Like, are they willing to just tear it down? But I don't think that wing – feels like they came out of this with a big win, right? Like Mike Johnson's a pretty conservative guy, but they were under a lot of pressure and came under a lot of hostility. And the fact that you saw people kill the um candidacy of much more conservative candidates for the speaker pretty heartily, to the point that on Jim Jordan's like second and third votes, you actually saw more people coming out publicly in opposition to him, should have been a warning shot. And I suspect will be received by a warning shot by Matt Gates and others saying, ooh, Maybe we've played our hand a little far. We came out with Mike Johnson. That's a fine outcome for us. Maybe we have to give it a little time to cool off before we come back nuclear. So I I kind of suspect that we will actually see some version of this go forward um, without these sort of crazy conditions on it. And a lot of it will happen because of closed-door negotiations and pressure brought within the Republican caucus we won't see. But uh, I I don't know. Everything's just so chaotic these days. You never know. And it all hinges on the decisions of just a few small actors because of the way the the, um, parties split – plays out in this case, and the fact that nobody's willing to work across the alley to really do things effectively.
2: Yeah, I mean, we look, we have a new speaker, but the House Republican conference is still the same. Yeah, it remains chaotic. Plus exactly. or minus George Santos, depending on whether or not they decide to expel him.
0: There you go. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of our time together this week. But this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week?
1: So one of the least important, but to my mind, most irritating things to come out of the Hamas attack on Israel is the wave of statements from universities which are just you know lame and it's just the whole thing has been just very unimpressive and I just came across this extremely funny piece of satire by um, someone named Jeff Moore who according to his bio is a former writer for the John Oliver show so he's a political comedian and it uh, purports to be a corporate statement from Windex um, and it begins as, as follows. <laughs> Windex believes that the collective lands of Israel-Palestine belong to the Natufian people, who lived in the region during the late Epipaleolithic era, circa 10,000 BCE. The Israelis and Palestinians, as well as the Druze, Bedouins, and other peoples of the region, are interlopers with no legitimate claim to the land. And it just goes on and on. Um, and it is one of the better pieces of satire I have read in quite some time. Um, and having said all this, it, I just realized that this is my second week in a row in which my object lesson is a satire about institutional statements about the Israel-Hamas war. I, I'm really apparently obsessed with this issue. Sorry, guys. It just makes a really good satire.
0: It does. I agree. I agree. Uh, it is uh, – I, I think it's a sign you you may really be in a, a vibrant academic institution that just inhabits your brain so much. The very phenomena of these sorts of statements. Quinta, what do you have for us this week?
2: I would like to recommend some escapist media. I think maybe last year I recommended a silly pirate comedy on HBO called Our Flag Means Death and an Object Lesson, which was kind of like a workplace comedy, but the job is being a pirate. Um, The second season just finished, and it is equally delightful, Um, And this time it is workplace comedy of being a pirate and also a rom-com in the middle of that um, and just is completely deranged. Uh, At one point, a character turns into a bird. Um, Everyone just kind of moves on. I have no idea how it got made and it is delightful. So if you are looking for something that is uh, just kind of absurdist humor and a bit of escapism, I highly recommend it.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Well, for my object lesson this week, I am bringing you a story of the power of love because— Ten years ago, yesterday was the ten-year anniversary of the day I met my wife, who I love very much. Aww. Mazel tov. Uh, And it, I am reflecting on. Yeah, it's it's crazy to think it was a decade ago that we met because it does not seem. You're long old. Long we You're an old have, man, Scott. It's okay. uh, family and children <laughs> and things like that. These days, yeah, I feel very old. Um, but uh, you know, it's wonderful. I never thought marriage would be uh, as wonderful as it is, and ten years in, I don't regret it for a second. So, uh, you know, monogamy—better than it's all cracked up for. Give it a shot. <laughs>
2: Does your wife listen to the podcast? <laughs> she does listen to the podcast now.
0: <laughs> after, after having uh, after having called her out pretty viciously in our third episode of the new version for not listening and therefore not recognizing Alan as my co host at some point. Uh, she listens to every episode. So I'm looking forward to her hearing this when she realizes I deign to talk about our meeting uh, in a place called The Corniche, which is the over-romanticized name. It sounds very romantic. It is, in fact, the sidewalk of the embassy in Baghdad that people <laughs> just call The Corniche uh, where we met. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to see how she reacts to this. She probably will not appreciate <laughs> it. But she also
1: will say after 10 years, this is kind of what I expected. I, I will also say I also have known my wife for 10 years. So yeah, this is a good excuse, year. Yeah, you guys are both wife guys. 2013. Wait, we're both what? <laughs> Your year, year of love, wife oh, guys. We're, we're def- I don't even know what wife guy means, definitely but I have a feeling guys. I know. And uh, we're definitely wife guys. You're you're definitely a definitely wife guy. Wife yeah, I'm solidly wife guy. I'm. I'm. I'm is that like guys, guys who really like being married? I don't know. Guys who let themselves go. Um, <laughs> 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 and I'm definitely a wife guy. <laughs> here's,
2: the, here's a here's article from the New York Times. Uh, the wife guy defines himself through a kind of overreaction to being married. <laughs>
1: yep, that sounds right. <laughs> That's awesome. Two wife guys. Yeah, two wife guys. Two
0: wife guys everywhere. You, you, what, what do you have for us today?
3: Okay, so that's hard to follow, though, because <laughs> you guys are talking about how much I you love your partners. really depressing.
0: This is why I would, after Quinta,
3: <laughs>
2: so yeah, well, mine, mine part part seems now. really stupid now. Yeah, Thanks.
3: it's not depressing. I'm more on the escapism, you know, bucket here. Um, that's fair,
2: too. Yes.
3: I, I'm going to recommend a video game. One of the things that Ooh. I've been kind of Sad about is that Baldur's Gate 3 came out recently, and my computer is not good enough. So I cannot play it. And so I've been looking for an alternative. Mm -hmm. And what I found is a 2015 game that Wikipedia calls the spiritual successor to the Baldur's Gate series. But because it's from 2015, I get to play it in my old old computer. <laughs> and it's fantastic. It's called Pillars of Eternity. And, you know, if you are into role-playing a game where your decisions actually impact what's happening, um, a lot of tough moral choices and very complex and mostly dark set of characters, I highly recommend you download Pillars of Eternity. Go play it.
0: I've heard wonderful things. Uh, I am not a video game person, but I grew up playing Baldur's Gate 1 and 2 and all the other. Neverwinter, I'm a big Dungeons & Dragons nerd, as people know, or was at least in my childhood. Uh, And so I love all of these games. Uh, And so I bought Baldur's Gate 3, the first video game I bought in over a decade, because I bought Skyrim back before I got sent to Baghdad for a year and a half because I needed something to do. (laughs) Uh, And I uh, set it up. I got it to run on my computer in a pretty blocky, not perfect format. I had to buy a whole separate hard drive to fit it. And I have played exactly 90 minutes in the last month and have not had any time to do it. I'm so jealous, I'm though. Not sure. I'm not sure I ever will. <laughs> but it is good. It's an impressive game. It's an mm-hmm. impressive game. I have uh, so I hear other good friends who are who are quite into it. Well, excellent. That's an excellent recommendation. I will also say... The old Baldur's Gate game is pretty sweet. Plane, uh, Planescape Torment, really awesome. If you want to play an old like 10 or 15-year-old like RPG, back in the day, it okay. was pretty awesome. That's all I remember and I was always impressed okay. by that. It's like the coolest of all those uh, and most interesting of all those ones. It's kind of about like the afterlife. It's like a fantasy version of Dante's Inferno. And so you're like traveling through the afterlife in planes and there's all these like weird creatures and it's great. Um, so recommend folks check that out as well. I'll throw that in, I'll throw that in the hopper. That's- if you're – that's a recommendation from like 13-year-old Scott, by the way, because I haven't looked at this thing in <laughs> years, but, but, you know, he, the kid had good taste. What can you say? Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. So please visit us at lawfaremedia.org for our show page, for links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. Also, be sure to follow us on X, at RITL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. For more details, visit lawfaremedia.org slash support. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Eugenia Lostry, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we'll talk to you next week. Till then,
3: goodbye.